You know, being a, a father is one of the greatest joys of my life. And, uh, you know, there was a moment in time I wasn't sure I was going to get to be a dad. Uh, Liz and I married when we were young. We were still in college. And uh, we weren't really wanting to build a family yet until I, I was in grad school. And we thought, well, you know, maybe this is the time that we should start our family. And so we started that uh, kind of intentional process. Let me just tell you, it, did, it didn't quite work so well. We went to the doctor several times and, and infertility became a real issue for us. Um, I mean, lots of tests, lots of uh, medications and different things like that and didn't think it was going to happen. And then finally, uh, we went to the doctor and he said, well, you're going to have triplets. We're like, whoa, wow, wow. I mean, I, I remember I was so overwhelmed I couldn't get out of the parking garage. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to buy a new car. I'm going to have to buy a house. I don't, I don't know how to do it. You know, I'm going to pick up another job, you know. And, uh, and of course, uh, that was a, a, a joy. Uh, but uh, as many of you know, uh, those triplets were born prematurely and, and went home to be with the Lord. And they're buried across the street at, uh, in Blue Bonnet uh, uh, Cemetery. And, and I think a after that, we thought, you know what, maybe it's just not for us. You know, maybe we're just, we're just not meant to have uh, children. And uh, so I remember about three or four months later, I'm out in the yard uh, working away. And Liz comes out into the yard. She's holding a little white stick, <laughs> twirling it around in the air. I'm like, why? You got to be kidding me. She's like, no. And it's, I picked her up and spun around. And of course, nine months later, our first daughter was born, Leah Beth. Three years later, our second daughter, Abby, was born. And we just lo have loved every season of their life. Uh, we have just adored them from the little kid stage to the elementary ages to those awkward uh, middle school years. Uh, to the to the, uh, the the challenging high school years, and then on to graduations and and weddings and having children. I mean, it, it's just been the greatest ride of our life. And uh, I, and I've learned I've learned a lot along the way. Um, you know, engaged dads really do have an impact. That is really true. Research tells us that children that have dads that are engaged. Uh, they are more likely to do better in school. They're more likely to um, have a good self-confidence. They're more likely to avoid uh, drugs and, and uh, crime and, and just all the bad things in life. And so we know this. We know that engaged fathers make an impact. But, but I've learned over these years another secret, and that is simply this. There's one thing a dad can do. The one thing that if you do this one thing, all the other things have even greater impact. It like maximizes the impact that you have. It takes your impact to a whole different level. This one thing. And that is simply this. Dads, if you want to maximize your impact as a father, walk with God. A father that walks with God makes an impact. In fact, I really believe that it's you know, your, your impact flows out of your walk with God. It is, it is how you make an impact with your children. Think about it. A father who walks with God is going to more likely love his wife and be committed to the marriage. A father who walks with God is more likely to be engaged with his children. A father that walks with God is more likely going to invest in his children and raise them up in a proper way. And so if you want to maximize your impact, you maximize your impact by walking with God. And so that's what I want to talk about 
today. This is, this is a, a message for everyone. Everybody needs to know how to walk with God, but every once in a while I'm going to peel off and just talk to dads, okay? And encourage fathers here today that your walk with God really does matter. I want you to take your Bible. Would you open up with me to two places, Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews 11. We're going to go to Genesis 5 first. So Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews 11. We're in our series, Leap of Faith, and we are looking at people who walked by faith in very challenging times. And we're going to be, every Sunday, we're going to look at a different person. But today we're looking at somebody that doesn't get a lot of press, doesn't get a lot of a talk, but yet has made a, a huge impact. And his name is Enoch. Enoch, all right? So let's, uh, let's look at it here. Genesis chapter 5, beginning of verse 21. And this is the word of God. So Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted uh, 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. So just circle the name Enoch there. Who is this guy, Enoch? He, he only appears in the Old Testament in this spot. His name appears amid a long list of genealogies that go all the way back to Adam, the first man. He's seven generations removed from Adam. But this is the only place in the Old Testament he's mentioned. He's mentioned two other places in the New Testament. In fact, he's talked about more in the New Testament than is in the Old Testament. However, he appears in Hebrews 11 in the all-star list of godly men that walked by faith. So he's an important example for us. We just don't hear a lot about him. In fact, I, you probably haven't heard a whole lot of sermons on Enoch, and I haven't preached a whole lot of sermons on Enoch. Uh, but he's a very important uh, character. And really, we learn a lot of just background from these few verses here. For example, we learn a little bit about Enoch's family. The Enoch was of a descendant of Seth. Seth was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And it was through Seth that God would bring the Messiah. So Seth represents a godly line. Doesn't mean that everybody in that line, that family line was a godly person, but that that was a special line through which God would bring the Messiah, Christ, into the world. Another thing we learn about Enoch is his world. Enoch lived in a period in history after the fall, when sin came into the world, and before the flood. After the fall, before the flood, when God judged the world. That period in history is called the antediluvian period. And and it is very different in some ways. It's very different than our world. For example, you might notice as I just read those verses that people live a long time, right? He said Enoch lived 365 years. You keep reading that list. Some are living living 700 years, 900 years. Like wow! I mean, you think your back hurts now? (laughs) What if you lived 700 years, man? That would be really really bad. Um, You know, people speculate that it's quite possible that the, the environment on the earth at that time pre-flood was different than now that, that allowed uh, for longevity of life like this. 
We're not really sure. What we do know for sure is in Genesis 6, God limits the, the amount of time a person will live now to right around 120 years. I mean, if you live, if you live 120 years, uh, you're, you're going to be one of the oldest people to ever live in our modern time. And so, for some reason, God limited that. So, in, in some sense, that world is different than ours in the longevity of life and maybe the environment in the world. But, but in some ways, his day is a lot like our world. For example, Enoch's world was a very dark and dangerous place. When God describes the world that Enoch lived in, this is what he said in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now think about that. Every person's inclination all the time was toward evil. The world of Enoch was a dark world. It was a spiritually dark world. It was a dangerous world. It was a wicked world. It was an evil world where no one was walking with God. No one was seeking the Lord. So that kind of really then highlights for us the other thing we learn about Enoch in this passage, and that is simply that his relationship with God. It says twice in these few verses that Enoch walked with God. This is repeated, and in its repetition, it is highlighted. It is emphasized. The one thing about Enoch that made him different is that he walked with God. He loved God. He worshiped God. He walked with God. Now, it appears that Enoch did not always walk with God. It appears from these few verses that there was something that happened that caused Enoch to walk with God. And I think we see it here in verse 22. It says, after he fathered Methuselah, his son, Enoch walked with God. So it seems that somehow the birth of his son seemed to trigger something in Enoch's life that said, man, I got to get my spiritual house in order. And that happens for a lot of men. A lot of men, you know, they're kind of trucking, everything's good. And all of a sudden, uh, their wife comes out with the white stick, you know, dancing in the front yard, you know, and all of a sudden like, whoa, you know, I got to get my act together, man. I got to figure this out. I got I to gotta raise a son or a daughter. And, and it's that very thing of becoming a father that can often motivate us to begin to walk with God. But I think there's something else uniquely going on here with Enoch. He, he fathers a son and he names a son Methuselah. Not a, not a name that a lot of people use these days. Would you agree? Uh, you don't say, hey, Methuselah, get over here. Uh, however, the name Methuselah can be translated. One version of the, of the way it can be translated is this. After he is dead, it is sent. That's, that's, that's a way to understand the name Methuselah. After he is dead, it is sent. And many scholars believe that what happened there is before Enoch fathered Methuselah that he had an encounter with God. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is, this is hypothetical. It's trying to make sense of what's happening here. That he had an encounter with God and that God revealed to him that the world is wicked and that a judgment is coming. And the judgment that the great flood that would come very soon is, is at the door and that Enoch was living in these last days, and that after his son died, that would be when the flood came. That's why he's named, after he dies, it will come. Now, 
History verifies this. The same year the Methuselah died was the same year the flood began. So what happened was that God confronted Enoch with the reality of this crisis, this coming crisis, and it changed him. And by the way, if God came to you and said, you're in the last generation before I'm going to destroy the earth, that would probably motivate you to walk with God, would it not? It probably would. And I think that's what motivated him. Listen, many times in a man's walk with God, it often comes to a crisis before he awakens to his need for God. For some of you, it's taken a crisis. I mean, it took, I mean, I lost my job or I got a bad health report or my wife walked out on me or, or my, my son is wayward or whatever the case may be that finally awakened you to your need for God. And it's in that crisis that you began to walk with God. And I believe that's what's happening here with Enoch. Let me ask you something. Just hit the pause button on that story for a minute. For some of you that are here, that are pushing God off, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to really walk with God? I'm not talking about showing up to church. I mean, after all, you're here, right? I'm talking about having a really heart, deep desire to walk with God. What's it going to take? Is it going to take another crisis? What's it going to take for God to get your attention? Enoch began out of this crisis. He named his son a warning to the world. And for the next 300 years, Enoch walked with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? If, if your greatest impact flows out of your walk with God, if your greatest impact flows out of your walk with God, then, then what does it mean to walk with God? And that's, that's really where I want to spend the rest of my time here. I want you to flip over to Hebrews 11. And we're going to learn a little bit about that. Hebrews 11 is a place in the New Testament where Enoch is mentioned. Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 5. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What does it mean to walk with God? When you think about a walk, you think about steps, right? When a little kiddo is starting to walk for the first time, you get them up, they're kind of wobbly, you're not sure that they can stand, and then they take their first step, and everybody goes crazy, right? Then they take a second step, and they go crazy, and then soon if they can put a few steps together, then they're, they're walking. That's what walking is. And so I want to talk about your walk with God in a series of four steps. And these four steps are the steps in order that lead you to be a man or a woman, a person that walks with God. So let's look at these four steps. Here's the first step. The first step to walking with God is to put your faith in the one true God. To put your faith in the one true God. That's how it starts. Uh, look at what it says here about Enoch. The very first two words in, in Hebrews 11 verse 5, by faith. By faith, Enoch walked with God. That means that he put his faith, he put his trust, he put his reliance on and his confidence on God and God alone. Now, now I want you to understand, it's not God with the little g. <laughs> what I mean by that, it's not like some 
kind of made up God, not some kind of generic God, God that kind of covers all the bases. He's not, he's putting his faith in the God of the Bible. He's putting his faith in the God that created the world. He's putting his faith in the God of Adam that walked with God in the cool of the day. He's putting his faith in the God that revealed himself to him, the God that revealed himself ultimately to Noah, the God that would ultimately reveal himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that would ultimately fully express himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the God, the God of the Bible. And so the beginning place for any person to walk with God is to believe that the God of the Bible exists. In fact, look at verse six. Look at what he says. You must first believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Every person starts to walk with God right here. That I believe by faith that the God of the Bible actually exists, that there really is a God who created the world and, and he is worth seeking out. And I'm gonna seek him out. I'm gonna see if he's really true. Jeremiah 29, 13 has got a great promise for us. It says this, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Listen, God shows up when you seek him. Isn't that true? God shows up when you seek him. I, I think every person that I've known that has said, you know what? I, I believe that there's a God that created the world. I believe that there's a God behind this Bible and, and I, I wanna know who he is. And if you seek him and if you seek him, if you seek him in the word, you seek him in the scripture, if you seek him through godly counsel, if you pray, say, God, reveal yourself to him. But to me, he will be found by you. And that's what happened with Enoch. Enoch had an encounter with God, the God of the Bible. And because of that, Enoch's life was changed. And by faith, Enoch began to walk with God. So this is the first step. If you are, are wanting to walk with God, the first thing I would ask you is not, are you going to church? The first thing I would ask you is not, were your grand, grandparents a Methodist or Baptist or Pentecostal or Catholic? I'm not gonna ask you any of those things. I'm gonna ask you, has there come to a place in your life where you have placed your faith and your trust in Christ alone? Because that's where your walk with God starts. That's where it begins. Now, Enoch started there by faith, trusting in the God, the one true God of the Bible. Second step, though, takes us to another level. If you're going to walk with God, you need to make it your goal to please God. Enoch lived his life to please God. Look at what it says in verse five. It says, for before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Underline that, those two words, he pleased God. And really at the core of walking with God is this desire to please God, that you know God personally. He's not the man upstairs. He's not, yeah, the God that's up there. I know he's around, you know, holding everything together. Woo, we keep it up. You know, he's not that. He's a person that I love, that I know, that I seek to please him and I want to please him. And when I say please him, I don't mean that you're going to try to have this long list of rules so that you keep all these rules. And if you keep all these 613 rules, then, then you will please God if you check all the rules. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a love relationship that desires to please God. You know, when Liz and I got married 
We, we married in a, in a church in our hometown. It was an evening wedding. Place was packed out. And uh, she walks down the aisle. She looks gorgeous. I'm there. I'm, I'm excited. I'm scared. I'm a, I'm a hot mess. And uh, we get together. I literally, I'm the guy that cried in the vows. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm an emotional guy. And, uh, and so when we, when we finish you know, saying our vows, Liz did not reach behind her and whip out a long list and say, now, if you want to please me, you need to keep all these. And she probably may have wished at times that she, she gave me this list, but she did not do that. But the fact that I love my wife, I want to please her because I love her and I'm in relationship with her then I, I want to please her. I want to go out of my way to do things that make her happy because I love her and I'm in fellowship with her and I walk with her. Now, the same thing is true. When you give your life to Jesus, you don't make your commitment to Christ and then he's going to pull out all the long list of things for you to do and you got to check all these things. That would be legalism. But it's out of the overflow of your love for God, not a list that you seek to please God. So let me ask you do, you, do you want to please God? Do you ever ask yourself, is this pleasing to God? Are the things that I say pleasing to God? Are the, are the things that I do pleasing to God? Are my priorities in my life really pleasing God? Is God happy with the way I spend my time, spend my money, spend my efforts, spend my life? See, that, that was a big pivot point for Anna. Let, let me just tell you this, and I'm gonna come close to you because I'm your pastor and I love you, all right? I always say that right before I hit you really hard. There are some people that after they give their life to Jesus, I got step number one down. Listen to me, this is really important. But they think the rest of their Christian walk is for God to please them. Well, God should be pleasing me. I have all my things that I want and, and I, I'm in this as long as God is pleasing me and giving me what I want in the time that I want it. And if God doesn't give me what I want in the time I want, then I'm angry with God and I'm mad with God. I don't want anything to do with God because this whole setup is that God's supposed to please me. And let me just tell you, that is a very immature faith. It's an immature faith. Because those that have walked with God for a period of time, at some point along their journey, they realize that it never was about God pleasing me, that it's always been about me pleasing God, me blessing him, me worshiping him, me serving him, me loving him, me, me bringing pleasure and joy and delight to him. And guess what? As I'm spending my life trying to bring pleasure and joy and delight to God, guess what happens in the meantime? God fills my heart with satisfaction and joy and love. See, it's not about God pleasing you. It's about you pleasing God. And that's a step of maturity that some people never make. But it is an important step in your spiritual growth. And listen, when you get to that step, a lot of things get easier in life. A lot of things get a lot easier because at this point, anytime you hit a crisis or you have a, a problem or you have a situation, the first thing you ask yourself is, well, what would please God in this situation? How should I respond to that? Well, what would please God? What would honor God? What would bring God delight and joy in me? That's the life that, that Enoch had. He had a life 
that sought to please the Lord in everything that he did. This was the heart of Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do what pleases the Father. Can you imagine? I always do. I'd love to be able to say that. It was the heart of the apostle Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our goal to please him. That's our goal in life, man. That's our aim is to please the Lord in everything that we do. And this was the heart of Enoch to please God in everything. So first step in, in my walk with God is to place my faith in the one true God. The next step growth step in my walk with God. Next level in that is really when I begin to see God not pleasing me, but I'm pleasing him. That's an important, important step in your walk with God. Then there's a third step in your walk with God. And that is to stand for the things of God. To stand for the things of God. Now, I, I want you to flip over, keep your finger in Hebrews 11, we'll come back. I want you to flip over to the book of Jude. We're moving around in our Bible today. Jude is the second to last book of the New Testament, right next to Revelation. If you get to Revelation, click to the left, then you'll be in Jude. Jude 14 is the other place where Enoch is mentioned. Okay, I'm giving you the three main places where he's mentioned today. Jude 14, this is what it says. And it was about these that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, now this little quote here, it comes from an ancient Jewish source that's attributed to Enoch and to one of his sermons. Remember, Enoch lived in this dark and dangerous world. Enoch was the only man that was walking with God at the time. God revealed to him that a judgment was coming. And so here is now Enoch preaching about this coming judgment, and he's warning. I mean, he's even named his son a warning to the culture. So here he is preaching, and, and he's warning these ungodly people that the judgment is coming, the hammer is dropping, that the time is running out. Now, how many of you thought that was a really popular sermon? How many of you think we're trending on, uh, on the social meds, right? Probably not. Not a lot of shares, not a lot of likes. Probably a lot of these right? On Instagram. Why? Because it's an unpopular message. But was it true? Yes or no? Yeah, it was true. Unpopular message, but it was true. Listen, Enoch was a man who walked upstream from his culture. Enoch was a man who stood his ground when everything else was swirling and, and the world seemed to have lost its mind, Enoch stood on the things of God and what God revealed to him, regardless of how popular it made him. We live in a day when people are really afraid. We're afraid to say what is true. We're afraid to be canceled. We're afraid to be labeled. We're afraid to be accused. We're afraid of a lot of things. But Enoch, Enoch was more afraid of offending God than he was afraid of offending people. We need more Enochs today. The year was 1521 and a German monk was brought before a tribunal. The charges against him were heresy. Because he dared 
to declare that a person is saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That the authority that we have is given through the scriptures alone. As he stood in this cathedral, the the upper tier and all around him, people packed in. It was so tight that you could barely breathe and it was so hot because of the, the, uh, the, just the body heat of the people there. The emperor Charles V was standing before him, one of the most powerful men on the world, in the world at the time and others made up the uh, tribunal. And they brought forth 40 volumes, 40 books that this monk had written and they stacked them up tall, 40 books. And they said, we only have two questions for you. Number one, are these the books that you have written? And number two, are you ready to recant what you have written? Only two questions. The monk's legal representative immediately spoke out and he demanded that all the titles of the volumes be read aloud in the cathedral. And so one by one, they began to read aloud the titles of these books. And I can imagine you could have heard a pin drop as they would read aloud these titles of his works about salvation. These books have been translated into multiple languages. These books have been read and reread and talked and debated and discussed. These books were beginning a revolution that, brought, that would bring Christianity back to its core of the gospel. Just the volume of material spoke volumes to his, his prowess as a theologian and teacher. Then when they were all read, they asked him, are these your books? And Martin Luther said, yes, they are. And they said, are you willing to recant of what you have written? And this is what Luther said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Listen to those words. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do not otherwise. So help me, God. You know, every man that walks with God some point, he walks by faith. He begins to live a life that pleases God. And at some point along the way, he will have a here I stand moment. She will have a here I stand moment. Every one of the people that we're going to learn about over the next several uh, uh, weeks here as we go through Hebrews 11, every one of them had a I'm standing alone moment when I have to stand that my conscience is captive by the word of God and here I stand. And that's what it will take for you to walk with God. And may I say, we need you in this day. God help me, God help us to be men that stand like Enoch in his day. But there's one last thing that I want to say about walking with God. I know our time is coming to a close. Step number four in your walk with God is that you leave a godly legacy. 
Enoch lived a godly life and he left a godly legacy. You may know or you may have heard of Enoch's great-great-grandson. His name was Noah. Anybody heard of Noah? He had a boat, right? We're going to learn about him next week, all right? But that was Enoch's great-great-grandson. And here's what we learn about Noah in Genesis 6-9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Isn't that great? Same phrase. Where in the world do you think he learned how to do that? Probably from his great-great-granddaddy, Enoch, who wasn't afraid to walk with God. Listen, men, dads, when you choose to walk with God, it it has a trickle-down effect. When you choose to walk with God and say, you know what, I'm really, I've given my life to Christ. I really am going to want to please God in every area of my life, and I'm willing to take my stand, and I'm going to invest in that and then talk about that with my sons and their sons and their sons or my daughters and their daughters and their daughters. When you do that, you are setting the pace for your family. And yeah, you may see it in your children. We pray and hope and, and ask God that we see it in your children. But it may, it may not be to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, but you will set the pace of a godly generation that will continue to walk with God in the days to come. I'm so glad I had a dad that walked with God and showed me what it looked like. I, I want to be a dad that walks with God and shows my children what it looks like. And to pass that on to the next generation. That's what it means to walk with God. And that's what God's called us. Listen, your greatest impact in life flows out of your walk with God. It's the thing that maximizes everything else. Let me just conclude with this. Uh, Enoch kind of left the world in in a different kind of way. You may have already picked up on that. He walked with God, but in Genesis 5, 24, it says Enoch walked with God and then he was not there because God took him. What does that mean? Well, we get a little more information in Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. So Enoch is one of only two people in the Bible that didn't die physically. He just went, God just took him to heaven. I, I don't know. I can't explain it more than that's what the Bible says. But I think, I just kind of imagine it this way, that Enoch is walking with God, and they're walking, and one day God says, well, Enoch, We've been walking together a long time, haven't we? Yeah, Lord, 300 years. Enoch, that's a long time. Yes, it is. Enoch, you know, it seems to me we're probably a little closer to my place than we are to your place. What do you say you just come on home? Lord, I think that'd be great. And Enoch stepped one step on this earth and the next step in heaven. You know, that's the way it is for a follower of Jesus. They've come to a place where they've trusted him by faith. They lived as best they know how out of love in their heart for God to please him. They've had their moments when they've had to take their stand. And then one day God says, you know what? I think you're closer to my place than your place. Why don't you just come on home? My prayer for you, more than anything else, is that you walk with God. Your greatest impact will flow out of your walk with God.
Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Maybe today God's working on you that you really haven't been living a life that pleases him. And he's drawing you back to that. Maybe, maybe you've not taken the first step, that step of faith to place your trust in Jesus. But I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. You know, the Bible says God created us to know him and to walk with him. That's why you were made. That's how you were created, to know God and to walk with him in that kind of unbroken fellowship and delight. But we have sinned against God. We have gone our own way. We have lost our way. We've replaced the glory of God and pleasing God with pleasing ourselves. And the Bible calls that sin. But God sent his own son, Jesus, on a rescue mission to draw us back to him. And Jesus came to reveal the love of God, to reveal what it meant to know him and to show us what walking with God looks like. But then Jesus went as a sacrifice and on the cross, Jesus took on all your sin, all your rebellion, all your failures. He took it on himself and he died for all of the things you have done and I have done on that cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and the grave. And he offers you all of his righteousness, your sin on the back of Jesus, his righteousness now credited to your account. That is the offer if you'll take it. And that is how you start your walk with God in a moment of simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. And if you have not done that, then today is your day. This is your opportunity. If right now you feel the drawing of the Spirit of God, you feel a, the, the twinge of conviction in your own heart, then your need, a sense of urgency that you need to be right with God, right now that's the, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you, convicting you, wooing you now. So I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Him. With your heads bowed, I'm going to say a simple prayer of faith. If you'd like, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I need Christ in my life. Pray for me that, because I need Jesus in my life. I want you to just lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I'm, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. Just lift up your hand and I'll see it and I'll pray for you. Just right where you're seated. Pastor, pray for me. Right now, just lift up your hand. Pastor, I need Jesus in my life. I need Christ in my life. I want to be right with God. I want to walk with God. All right. Okay, you can put your hand down now. Just pray the simple prayer with me. Dear Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I've gone my own way. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Today, I surrender myself to you. And I want to walk with you all the days of my life. Father, I thank you for your word today on this Father's Day. Lord, thank you for Enoch, a great example to us of how to walk with God. Lord, I pray for every father in this room that God, you would fill them with your spirit to walk with you more deeply than ever before. Lord, help them to please you in everything that they do. Give them courage when they take their stand. And Lord, help them to invest spiritually in the next generation, God, for your glory 
and for your name's sake, we pray this. Amen.